So what have we been doing? Well, we've been doing the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to continue doing that. We're going to be doing this for a while. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we're just a little bit into 5 right now. We've been... Um, here's the thing. You know that I don't typically do verse-by-verse -verse studies, and there's a reason for that, because we can get lost in the weeds. We can get lost in just, you know, verse-by-verse -verse and lose the connection with our lives, lose why this is important, lose what is this actually teaching me so that when I walk out that door, I'm better prepared to make my next decision, better prepared to be able to just face what life presents. Without that one-to-one -one connection, you know, we, we might as well be reading anything. It really doesn't matter. Trying to connect. So I typically do topical studies where I'm hitting something that connects deeply to who we are as people and what it is that we're experiencing in life. And let's see how Scripture deals with that, you know, in a cumulative sort of way. So as we do this verse-by-verse -verse study, and I, I really take the Sermon on the Mount and put it in a special place because it is just absolutely concentrated Jesus stuff. I mean, it's like, it's like the concentrate that you use to make your drink out of. It's just all right there. It was probably an early catechism for the church. And so every single verse is packed. Every single verse is so deep. And we have been looking at this as poetry, which is so important for us to do. Because of our, our Western mindset, we're going to look at things legally. We're going to look at them literally. We're going to look at them in terms of accuracy. But what Jesus is really doing here is painting a poetic picture. He's using every poetic trick in the book to try to get us to understand that there is something here that is beneath words, that if we don't grasp experientially, we're going to miss what Father is. We're going to miss what our lives are about. So we need to put on kind of a different sort of cap, a different pair of glasses, if you will to look at what Jesus is saying, to understand that the figures of speech, the idiomatic expressions, the metaphors, the beautiful symbols that he's using are meant to do exactly that, to point us in a direction. And so in the Beatitudes, we talked about that being the portrait of the finished product. Here is what the kingdom person looks like. And remember, kingdom is not a place. Kingdom is a person. Kingdom is every one of us. When we take on the same attributes in our lives that the Beatitudes are pointing out and painting for us. To be humble, to be connected, to be perseverant, to be passionate, ongoing every single day. There's much more to it, but those are the main traits that Jesus is getting across. If you can be humble, vulnerable, open, at the same time grateful in your dependency, fearless in your vulnerability, if you allow that to connect you to everyone and everything you encounter in life, and if you will get up every day, like that little chihuahua mix, and do the same thing over and over again, show up every day and find the sacred nature of that, then, for such as you, our kingdom. And then he moves immediately that into what sometimes is called the ninth beatitude, but there's a shift in, in, in pronouns there from they and those, third person, to you, second person, he is now saying, if you do this, if you take this road, then there's going to be an effect on you. And the initial effect that you're going to have is that you're going to have to suffer. The people around you aren't going to understand where you're going. It's not going to make any sense to them. And the division will start with those who are closest to you in your own home. 
That point of division, the sword instead of the calm and the tranquility is what he's talking about there. And you will also open yourself up as your awareness expands beyond just a little egoic bubble. As your awareness expands, you're going to be open to more and more of the world's pain around you. Because this is what happens to all prophets and prophetesses is that they suffer just because they're aware of so much more suffering around them. And sometimes the inability to relieve that suffering, to be able to know what we can control and what we can't control, and yet to show up every day with perseverance, with hope, with gratitude, to do what it is we do. So that is the effect on the individual. Then he moves on to the effect that this individual will have on the people around them both those most intimately connected and those in the larger community, this person who stays dedicated and undiverted is going to have the effect of salt and light on the people around them. And we talked about this. Light makes sort of sense to us. We understand light. We understand light as goodness. We understand light as certain things in, in our Western culture that make sense. But salt, so we spent a lot of time talking about salt last week and what salt meant to the ancients. Before refrigeration, before antibiotics, salt was life. Salt was everything. Salt was used as currency and traded equally for gold and silver and fine linen because it was so absolutely central to life. What were the three things that salt does? Well, first of all, salt purifies and it preserves. That's why you purified your foods. If you wanted to last through the winter, you salted down your meats, you salted your fruits and your vegetables, you, you pickled them, you, you preserved them. If your soil, and in the Middle East, the soil is very acidic, you use salt as fertilizer to balance out the pH so you could grow your crops. And of course, you used it as we do, as seasoning, to vitalize, to add intensity and zest to life. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, his first hearers would have understood the centrality of salt. And when he says, you're the salt of the earth, they understand what that means. Because they know the place that salt holds in their lives. But what about light? So if we move back to Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. And in the message that Frank read a little earlier, he, he read this, the light passage in the message. But I love the little intros that uh, Eugene Peterson puts in there. Let me tell you why you're here. And this is exactly spot on. Jesus is saying, let me tell you why you're here as a kingdom person. If you can do this, if you can persevere, if you can do what it takes to let go of everything that blocks this kingdom view, this is why you're here, to be salt you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Then he says, and here's another way to put it. These are Jesus' two primary metaphors, salt and light. Want to talk about poetry here? Salt and light to describe the effect that these people have on everyone around them. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Okay. First thing we need to do is make sure that we're still not looking through Western lenses. All right? These are not commands. Jesus has not given a command yet in 16 verses of Matthew 5. The Beatitudes are simply a statement of being. 
These are the ones who are kingdom. Then he switches to second person. You will be feeling these effects if you go down this road. With salt and light, these are you are statements. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's simply stating the way things are. This is what happens. He's stating cause and effect. The Beatitudes are the cause, right? This is what it looks like to move a person in or a person who has moved into kingdom become kingdom. That's the cause. The effect is salt and light on the rest of the community. Not a command. We need to understand this isn't about obedience. This isn't about a legality. This is cause and effect. If you will follow my word, if you will abide in my word, everything that I'm about, then this is the function. So the function of salt was to preserve, to purify, to fertilize, to vitalize. The function of light we need to talk about a little bit because we want to go beyond just what we would think of in our Western culture. So light, nura in Aramaic, is not simply visible light. This is the important thing we need to understand. There's a metaphor here. There's a symbol here. As poetically we can expect Jesus to do, he's giving us a deeper meaning. So light and dark. In our Western mindset, we have a dualistic symbolism that we use for light and dark. Lightness and darkness represent for us good and evil. They represent for us separate and opposed forces constantly at battle with each other. We understand darkness as maybe the absence of light, the absence of goodness, right? A vacuum, a void, nothingness maybe. Or we can take it and see it as active evil, actual malevolence. We can see it as a euphemism for the devil, an actor, someone who is trying to make things bad, make things dark. But notice the the dualism there. Light, dark, good, evil. Completely mutually exclusive, opposed at opposite extremes, and creating this cosmic ongoing battle. Now, in an Eastern mindset, in a Hebrew mindset, and Hebrews are Eastern, we established that last week, right? Sometimes we forget that. Good and evil, lightness and darkness are both continuums through. It's not a a break, a mutually exclusive break, but a continuum. Different but complementary and necessary forces. There is nothing in Hebrew cosmology, there's nothing in Hebrew thought that says that darkness needs to be eradicated as we do in the West. We're not supposed to oppose the darkness, we're not supposed to eradicate it, it needs to complement. We need to understand the fullness of the continuum between the two if we're going to ever be able to live here successfully between heaven and earth, as they understood humans to be doing, occupying the space between heaven and earth. So, there's continuums between these. Different, but complementary, necessary, and they must balance. If you have your inserts, take a look at them right now. There's a table in there. And I want to just use this as a bit of a graphic way of looking at this. We've often talked about good and evil in here. Taba and Bisha in in Aramaic. The fact that for them, once again, good and evil are not opposing forces that are mutually exclusive, but a continuum between ripeness and unripeness. 
between immaturity and maturity, between not readiness and readiness, between the ability to preserve and nourish life and the inability to do so. There's a continuum there. And every one of us is somewhere on that continuum. From an undeveloped place, maybe an immature place, to a more mature place, we're somewhere on that continuous continuum. You want to know how God can look at us and still love us with the complete and allness that he does, even though we know. You know, I've, How many people have I heard say, I'm the worst sinner in the world. I'm the worst sinner I know. It's so hard to believe that God can love the worst sinner that you know unless you realize you're just on a continuum. We don't blame the baby for not being able to use the restroom. We change the diapers dutifully because we know they're just on the continuum. They will get there eventually, but they're not there now. Continuum makes the difference. Between Nura, light, and Heshuka, darkness, there's a complementary attribute between the two. Nura, light, something that is seen, something that you can actually put edges around and you can define. Straight lines, ordered, usable, as opposed to darkness, heshuka, unseen, swirling or curved, chaotic, unusable. We can think of Nura as the straight lines of the sun's rays. The sun's rays are completely laser straight, right? You put something up and the, the shadow that it creates is straight lines. It's ordered, it's harmonious, we can see it, it's there. It's daylight, sunshine. As opposed to nighttime, as opposed to wind and water, two of the most powerful forces on the face of the earth, and yet they're unpredictable, they're swirling, they're chaotic. You need chaos theory to be able to start to explain the movements of wind and water across the earth because you just can't. How does it work? How do you predict it? Where does it show up? This is the difference between the two. Ordered, straight, visible, swirling, chaotic, invisible. Not necessarily dark, but you're starting to get the idea. And then flowing out of that day and night, Yama and Leila in Aramaic. Alternating between the two. Necessary to be alternating. Life depends on the alternation. We wouldn't have life on this planet if it weren't for the alternating of day and night. I remember reading this uh, science fiction novel. It's called Ring World. And, and they, some ancient technology built a ring around a star. And so the, the entire living space was on the flat ring around the star. But you still had to have day and night. So inside the circumference of the ring, you had a series of blocks that were connected by wires that also rotated, giving sh shade and then alternating sunlight and shade. You know, I don't know why that just popped into my head or why I said it. But the understanding and the realization that it's absolutely essential for us to have this alternation. Yama, rational, conscious, linear, the time that we go out and do things in the light. But... Layla, night, intuitive, unconscious, dreamlike, a time for assimilation, a time for all of that to go into repose. Have you ever been working on a problem right up to the time you go to bed and you still can't figure it out and then you get up in the morning and there it is, just kind of pops in your head? What do you think is happening in the time of Layla? What do you think is happening in that place of assimilation where we just let the linear go? 
stuff is still happening. Absolutely essential. So in Hebrew thought, these things that we see so dualistically, they still see unitively. They see as one thing, but a continuum or an alternation between the two. And that alternation of day and night, you can imagine going so fast that it just is a blur of one thing. Just like we talked about the circle dance and the trinity being a blur of one thing, even though it's made up of constituent parts functioning as one, but still a unity. And so the important thing to take away from this is that light is not necessarily visible here. We're not talking about the limits of visual light or even as beautiful as our Western imagery would be about the light and the light shining. It's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that's involved here. Straight, ordered, usable, functional. And darkness is not necessarily blackness. It still can be in the daylight, but it's also obscure. It's chaotic, unusable, unfunctional. This is more where we're going with light and dark. So think about if you want to put this in a little bit... See if I can shave a little finer point. Think about Genesis 1. At Genesis 1, this light of creation is here on the, on the sheet as well, I'm sure. Brandon's already got it up there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. You want to talk about Hebrew poetry? That's about as beautiful as it gets. Look at that. Look how it's written. You can just see those images, but look at the import of what is being conveyed here. The darkness is older than the light. Do you get that? The earth is formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. That's a shuka. That's darkness in the terms in terms of chaos, unordered, unusable, undifferentiated, right? And then comes the light. So the darkness preceded the light. It existed before the light. Earth and the whole universe was chaotic, non-functioning, not usable, but God brings order. God brings harmony intelligence. God brings support for the life that would follow. Remember, the light is created on day one, but the sun is not created until day four. So context forces us to understand that the light is not primarily about visible light. It's about the order that is being brought. Now, the three words that make up in the beginning God created in Hebrew are Bereshit, Bara, Elohim. Bara is the word that we have translated as created. But that's really not the best idea or the best concept of what's going on here. It's not so much creation in the way we think of just an abstract mental thing and all of a sudden things appear. The idea in the Aramaic, or I should say in the Hebrew, are more God builded the heavens and the earth to build, to differentiate, to separate and here's maybe the best way to understand it, to allocate roles. Here you have this undifferentiated, chaotic, swirling energy, this chaos, right? And he is building order into it, creating harmony, but also differentiating and allocating roles that are going to be essential in the support of life. Separate functions, 
but all functioning still as one, with one purpose, under one will. God separates the light from the dark. He separates the water from the land. He separates male from female, yeah? He separates night from day. All of these seeming dualities really functioning as one, but creating the different roles, just like the Trinity, different roles that are essential, but still functioning as one and the same. This is the order that God brings. This is the difference between the light and the dark. And the dark precedes the light. Think about just us as child development, right? The primitive brain, the primitive thoughts precede any of the rational thoughts that come. The id of Freud, that primitive, we call it the reptile brain, right? The lizard brain. Just basic life functions. That precedes the ego. That precedes the, the higher functioning thought of the neocortex. We talked about all the different parts of the brain. The rational thought. The unconscious preceding the conscious. You know, I was talking about our little dog. Well, the little dog really doesn't have higher thought. It has the lower thought, the primitive brain. It has the unconscious parts, just like a child does. But at a certain age, the child graduates. And so the darkness precedes the light. The primitive brain precedes the illumination, the illuminated insight, the understanding that comes later. We all understand that this is the process but we don't see necessarily how it pertains to what Jesus is saying here or what the Bible says about the creation of everything that we know. This kingdom person that Jesus is talking about is salt and light. Where are they salt and light? Well, he says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. So we have earth and we have world. Are they completely synonymous? Are they the same? Or is there any distinction that we can make here? And will that distinction help us as we walk out that door? Uh, you can be the judge of that. The salt of the earth, in Aramaic, it's Melkadara. Earth, Dara, Ara, earth. But it means earth in the sense of soil, the ground, or the country, nature. It's dealing with the physical earth, the earth that we till, the earth that we, that we live on and in, the earth that we can put our toes into. It's that kind of earth. The light of the world, Nura Dalma, Alma as the word for world there. That literally means eternity, age, generation, or era. It points to cycles of diversity, cycles of generation. The As the ancients looked out at the world and they saw just the vast amount of wildlife, the fish in the sea, herds of animals, and there was this vast diversity, and it was always changing, always renewing itself in cycles. That's what they called Alma, but that was also the world that they lived in, always different, always changing. That idea that you never step into the same river twice looks the same, but it's always different. There's something different because something has changed. That was their idea of the world. That moves us into a more spiritual realm. So Ara, earth. Yeah, you're the salt of the earth, the physical place that we live. You're the light of the world, Nura Dalma. But this idea of eternity. John 3.16, we've gone through this before. For God so loved the world, Alma, that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes will not perish, but will have eternal Alma life. It is so interesting that Alma is the same word in Aramaic translated both as world in the front part of that verse and eternity or eternal in the second part of that verse. And to understand how Aramaic works, that it gives us both ideas at the same time. Context tells us how to understand it, but that underlying meaning, constantly changing, eternal life is not life that goes on forever. Eternal life, or life that is eternal, is life that is always new, always fresh, never boring. It's your ability to get up and play the same game over and over with the same excitement every single time because you realize you're not stepping into the same river every time. That's eternal life. The ability to, to experience your moments as always new, always fresh, always exciting, always sacred, with full gratitude. You see how this all dovetails with the idea of who this kingdom person is in the Beatitudes. How do you get to that place of gratitude? When you get up and you go to work every single day, when you get on the train every single day, when you get on the freeway every single day, how can we see that through some sort of lens that exposes the sacred nature of even what seems so mundane? That's life that is eternal. That's Haye the Alma. Nura Dalma, light of the world. All of these concepts are connecting. This person, this kingdom person, is bringing salt and light into both physical and spiritual spaces and bringing the physical and spiritual spaces that we sometimes see, again, dualistically as separate, but bringing them into unity, bringing them into the moment, bringing them into a harmony of purpose that Jesus calls kingdom, allowing us to successfully live between heaven and earth, to merge the two, which is what the Hebrews understood was our job as human beings, to live between heaven and earth, but to merge the two. And so this light, Jesus says, let it so shine. Let it shine in such a manner, in such a way, that people will see your good works. And so now we go right back into a legalistic mindset, don't we? Oh, I got to do my good works and I got to let everybody see my good works. No, that's not really it. <laughs> he talks about a city on a hill. And if you can imagine in the ancient world, um, a hill on a plain with a fortified city built on the top of it. You got the city built on this this you know, elevated space, the walls are around it. From wherever you are on that plane, you got straight sight lines to that city. Nothing is taller than that city. Nothing can break your sight lines with that city. You can't hide that city. And of course, that's the point. They want to be able to see who's coming, right? But the city on the hill, they understood that concept because they had experienced that. You can't miss the city on the hill. It's got sight lines everywhere in all directions. So you're like a city on the hill. More poetic speak, right? This light is like a city on the hill. Everybody will see it as long as you are it. You are like a city on the hill. They will have sight lines to you. You don't have to do anything to be visible. You just will be visible like the city on the hill. And if you have this light... You put it on a lampstand. You don't stick it under a basket. That would defeat the purpose of burning oil in a lamp if you put it under a basket, right? Now, the word there, sharaga, 
meaning lamp or candle, comes from the verb in Aramaic that means to illuminate, to imagine, to dream. Do you see how all these layer up again? This light is just not about light and good works, you know, good deeds some in some sort of legal way. It's also the place where dreams come from. It's a place where our imagination fires. It's a place where love is vitalized, like with the salt, right? More poetry. And sata, a basket, is any round enclosure, a secret place. A veil can be a shelter, can mean all those things. Jesus uses these words deliberately for a particular audience. Who was he speaking to? Mostly he was speaking to dirt-poor Jews. Most of them lived in the back of beyond, in the Galilee, which was like <laughs> like New Yorkers looking at people in Alabama. That would be what it was like. You're on the other side of the tracks. You speak funny. You know? You're not educated. You don't know the ways of the cultural world. This is the way that Judeans looked at Galileans. Jesus was from Galilee. Jesus spoke primarily to the Galileans. Who is he speaking to? Very poor people. Now, poor families, just like poor families today, maybe just like where we're all headed, lived in multi-generational, multi-family dwellings. They couldn't afford to have their own homes. And some of them, they would be living multiple families put together, but in just one room, sometimes with up to 50 people in one room. How did they manage that? You know, when there's no room for Jesus at the inn, I should say there's no room for Mary and Joseph at the inn, and we think of an inn like a Motel 6, but really what we're talking about there is a shirah. The shirah was a living space within the home. And so these homes had dirt floors, and they would bring their animals in with them because they had to stay warm and they had to protect them from thieves and whatnot. And so the animals would be there on the dirt part, but they would have an elevated platform that they called the shirah, which was the living space. Now, these multiple families would all have their area within this larger room, all have their living spaces, and they would all have their own lamps that they would put on the lampstand. So each area within the living space of these poor families would have a lampstand and a lamp that would light for their family their living space. Now, if a family ran out of oil, you know, the neighbor could bring their light over so it kind of lit both sides. Or if one family was going to bed early, they could shade or veil their light with a basket or something that would shade them. And so these, this is the just a real-life experience of the people that Jesus is talking to. They understand the realities of these homes. And so he is using imagery there that they will understand. When you do light a light, you don't put it under a basket unless you're being courteous to your neighbor. But the first followers would have understood. You're going to let your light shine. It is vital to life to have that light at night. You would share it with your neighbor, share it with the family that ran out. And so he's, under, he's using this imagery for them to understand more and more what he's going on, where he's trying to go with this. Salt and light. Let your light so shine. Let it shine in such a way. In other words, live your life openly, transparently, vulnerably, not secretive, not in the dark. He's saying hide nothing. But more importantly, he's saying have nothing to hide. 
Live your life in such a way that there's nothing that you need to keep secret, that there's nothing that you need to keep under the basket. Let everyone just see who you are because you're a city on the hill. When you are living this life, you will be visible. Don't do anything. Don't put any shields up. Don't put any defenses down. Don't hide in any way because there's no reason to. And if there is a reason to, then take a look at that, fix that, and then come back to living your life openly. Frank read the message, just the one part that that, uh, I think Eugene Peterson got so right. He translates this as, keep open house. (laughs) Any of you who have sold a house, you know what that's like, right? Man, everything is just on display. They go everywhere. You know, they're looking at everything. And so he, you know, he's saying, keep open house. Be that open. Be that transparent. Let people look in your drawers. Let them look into the cupboards. Let, you know, can you do that? Can you be comfortable living that way? Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. Let everything flow through. Don't dam it up. It's only in our fear that we dam things up that we become misers, that we think we have to hold on to things. But if we know there's an eternal source, let it flow. Always enough for me to drink as the water's flowing through and on to the next, right? It's our fear that causes us to live in a secretive way, in a different way than all of this. Be generous with your lives. By opening to others, you will prompt others to open up to a generous God. I think he caught the the spirit of that beautifully. Let your life be this light that reflects and points to the Father. If they see you living as Beatitudes, they will know who their Father is. Just as Jesus said, you don't need to see the Father. Just look at me. The Father and I are one. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't do through me. So how do we become this light? What is the process that we can use if we want to be the kind of light that Jesus is talking about? John 3.19, the light came into the world, but men loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. The light came into the world, but men loved the darkness. Why would they love the darkness? Why would we love the darkness? Well, obviously, if we have something to hide, if we're doing something we know we need to keep secret for whatever reason, then we're going to love the darkness but maybe less maliciously. Have you ever known someone who just always seemed to be in chaos? Wherever they went, craziness seemed to follow. You know, we can call them a drama queen, I suppose, if we want to. Here I'm going to use an illusion that's probably too old for some of you, but do you all remember Peanuts? Remember Pigpen? <laughs> Wherever he went, there was that cloud of dirt and dust, and he was like an entropy, you know, he, you know human entropy man. You know, wherever he went, disorder followed. Or maybe it was a little Abner character with the, with the rain cloud that followed that character around. But we've all known, I'm, see, I see our heads going up and down. We all have known people like that. We've been people like that at times, right? So familiar with the darkness that we're uncomfortable with the light. We don't know what to do when things go right. It doesn't feel right. We're so used to the drama, the energy, the intensity of difficult things going on in our lives that suddenly when everything's okay, it's just like, you know, 
You can stir crazy. I, I got to gin something up. Something's got to happen here. Literally, people will create difficulties, create the drama just to feel like they're okay. And then there's victimhood. Victimhood is a warm blanket, don't you know? If you're a victim, it means you have no choice in the matter. You're not responsible. And as long as you're a victim, there's no pressure to do anything. You can just be a comfortable victim for as long as you want. We do love the darkness, don't we? We do love the chaos, don't we? For a lot of psychological reasons. And out of our pain and out of our fear, it's always out of the fear and the pain that comes from the fear. We get stuck in the chaos. We get stuck in the trauma. That id, again, you know, that primitive brain, that childlike mind has no sense of time. No. Our little dog has no sense of time. It's always now. The little child, always now, right? And so whatever trauma you recall is always now. It's like PTSD. It's always here. It's always now. It never, and no matter what circumstances change, it doesn't matter. The trauma you recall is now. It's as if it's now. We get stuck in these kind of cycles, and it is so difficult to break out. How do we break out? How do we break out of that kind of cycle of trauma and loving the darkness? Not consciously, of course, you know, and in various degrees. But if we are being limited by where we are, how do we break out? How do we go to the next place? First of all, our desire, which usually means our pain, has to be greater than our fear. I love that line from the program, we progress at the pace of pain. It's so true. Pain is what creates desire to move to a different place. If we're fat and happy, we can stay just where we are. But usually it's pain that is motivating us, creating a desire to want to go to a different place. And that desire must be greater than the fear. That's the first thing. The second thing is we need to recognize the nature of enlightenment. Because enlightenment is not straightforward. We don't just go get enlightenment like we go get Cheerios at the store. It doesn't work that way. Not like we go get a job or a degree or anything else that we accomplish in our lives in this physical world. To get enlightenment is not like that. You can't buy it. It can't be bestowed to you. That's strange. You can't just go in a straight line from where you are to where you want to go. It's a different experience entirely. And you don't get it all at once, which is the other thing. There's a story, and I'm going to turn my amp off. Because that's what was annoying me. There's a story that I heard that uh, a farmer had a dry well on his land. And, um, you know, dry but still deep. And one of his mules fell into the well. So now the mule is, okay, he's down there, but he's at the bottom of the well. And so the farmer's saying, how am I going to get this animal back up? And he gets all his friends over there, and they're trying to get ropes around it and trying to pull it up. They can't get the well out. The, well, the, the, the mule is screaming down there, and there's nothing they can do. And so finally he says, well, you know, I need to fill up this well anyway. I should have filled it up a long time ago. I guess goodbye, mule. We're going to just go ahead and fill up the well, and we'll bury him down there and, and uh, say a prayer. So they start shoveling dirt into the well, and the mule is going nuts, you know, braying and screaming when he realizes these guys aren't going to get me out of here. 
And then all of a sudden he goes silent. I'm saying, what the heck? They look down, and he's standing down there. They shovel some more dirt. He hits the mule in the back. He shakes it off and steps up. Shakes it off, steps up. And eventually he just steps out of the well and goes on his merry way. When we find ourselves at the bottom of a well, we want straight lines to be sent down to us to pull us up. We want the lights, the lines of Nura. We want those straight and ordered rays. We want a clear and direct and linear cause and effect, assumption to conclusion, non-contradiction, only one thing true at a time. That's the way we want to get pulled out of our well. It doesn't work that way. It's an indirect layering up that actually takes place. Layer after layer, step after step, that raises us into the light. The light, straight rays of light, can't penetrate the curved and swirling walls of your well, of your hishuka, of your chaos, of your disorder. They won't do it. They can't do it. But you can be layered up if you will persevere, if you will show up day after day and do the tiny little things like a shovel full of dirt that will give you another step up and another after that and another after that. Remember, the darkness precedes the light. The darkness is older than the light. We have a word for this that Frank has always hated. It's called endarkenment. The endarkenment is what takes us into enlightenment. But it doesn't operate the same way. If we can get a little bit of our head around this, and if we can accept the process of endarkenment, of being layered up into the light, everything begins to change. If you analyze Jesus' poetic teaching, this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to show us it's the opposite of what you think. You want to be first, you got to be last. You want to have your life, you got to lose your life. You want to be in charge, then you got to serve everyone. He's showing us with paradox the indirect nature of this way of his, this endarkenment, this, this layering up into light. If we can accept that, and more than that, if our desire overcomes our fear to throw away everything that we think we know about accomplishment in our lives and enter a process like this and stay true to it, to keep showing up to it, then we can start to take on the attributes of the Beatitudes without even really realizing we're doing it. Because we don't take an attribute and grab it by the throat and make it ours. We slowly become it, and it doesn't feel like learning. It doesn't feel like accomplishment. It just feels like living your life, but in a certain way, in a way that Jesus prescribes, in a way that has an arrow pointing toward the Father. Are we willing to do this? Are we willing to sell everything, which Jesus keeps coming back to, Remember when he said the kingdom is like a treasure that someone found hidden in a field? And out of joy of finding that treasure, what does he do? He rehides it. <laughs> he reburies it or whatever you would think. He said, and he sells everything he has and buys the field. Sort of a long way around, really, when you think. But for a very specific reason. He can't assume the treasure until he sells everything he has so that he can buy the field. You see? It's indirect. I already got the treasure. All I got to do is walk away with it. No. You can't do that until you sell everything that you have. 
And now you can buy the field. Now you can own the space where the treasure exists. You've got to see the difference here. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, what must I do for eternal life? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. It's the same principle. Because this way of Jesus is not straightforward and direct. It's endarkenment leading to enlightenment. And if we don't get that, if we're not willing to accept that, Jesus would say, you have your reward in full. You're following all the rules. You're keeping the law. You're doing everything. You're doing all the good deeds. You're still a blessing to your household. But you'll know that something's missing. You'll know it deep down someplace, which is why the young man came to Jesus in the first place. And it's up to you what you want to do with that. But this is the only way to the Father. I am showing you this. I am that way. It's up to you. This spiritual formation that takes effort. It really costs us everything. And yet, the things that matter come back to us. But we won't ever look at them the same way from the other side of this. If we're willing to sell everything, if we're willing to unidentify with our sacred cows, the ones that we have built up in our life, whatever it is that we have gathered and accrued and piled up in our life that we've come to identify with and are clinging to for our survival and for our sense of accomplishment, if we're willing to let go of that, if we're willing to practice over and over just the simple presence, to let our awareness grow and catch up to us so that in real time we can make different decisions, ongoing, disciplined, structured. It's like urban warfare. It's house by house and block by block. It's moment by moment choice. Are we willing to keep making those choices? Because if we will, we're literally remapping our brains. We're literally creating this new normal. We're literally learning to be balanced enough with regulated emotions enough to begin to do the real work, which is just learning how to trust God and trust each other as much as we can be trusted. But to trust God that everything really is going to be okay. Because until we have that in our back pocket, everything is too fearful. We won't be able to do this work unless ultimately we are relying on a power greater than ourselves that can and will restore our lives to sanity. That's the way this works. There is no other way. If we will drop our shields, if we will allow ourselves to really connect in a vulnerable way, then we can begin to be salt and light. And we can begin to leave others better than we found them without any effort. It's just going to be who we are. And then we can learn to actually love the light because we've got nothing to hide, nothing to hide from. We can see the light. This light, this nura, this order, this harmony that gives meaning and purpose to the darkness, to those swirling energies, to that assimilation, to that absolutely necessary part of our lives. Meaning and purpose will be seen in it because of the light that we are that blesses everyone around us and finally lets us know we have become kingdom. We are sitting at the Father's feet. That's a really good place to be. Let's pray. Father, you are light and you are darkness. You are Nura and Heshuka. 
You're the allness of everything in life that we need. Help us to see that. Help us to not just be continually pulling the pendulum to one side or the other that we think is where we're supposed to be, advantageous, but find the balance in the middle. Find how all of this works together for good for those of us who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we do love you, Lord. It just sometimes is difficult for us, and you know that. Help us to be willing. Help us to look at our fears and see how they hold us back and how our desire can overcome them to just simply be with you more perfectly. Thank you for all these examples, Lord. Thank you for our scripture. Thank you for those around us who are salt and light to us so we can understand more what that means in our own lives. And most of all, thank you for you, Lord, for your constant love. Never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.